Chapter Three, Life in the Clearings versus the Bush, by Susanna Moody, Free Schools: Thoughts on Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Truth, wisdom, virtue, the eternal three, great moral agents of the universe. Shall yet reform and beautify the world, and render it fit residence for Him in whom these glorious attributes combined to render perfect manhood one with God. There is no calculating the immense benefit which the colony will derive from the present liberal provision made for the education of the rising generation. A few years ago, schools were so far apart, and the tuition of children so expensive. That none but the very better class could scrape money enough together to send their children to be instructed. Under the present system, every idle, ragged child in the street, by washing his face and hands and presenting himself to the free school of his ward, can receive the same benefit as the rest. What an inestimable blessing this is! And how greatly will this education of her population tend to increase the wealth and prosperity of the province? It is a certain means of a calling out and making available all the talent in the colony, and as thanks be to God, genius was never confined to any class. The poor will be more benefited by this wise and munificent arrangement than the rich. These schools are supported by a district tax, which falls upon the property of persons well able to pay it. But avarice and bigotry are already at work to endeavour to deprive the young of his new-found blessing. Persons grumble at having to pay this additional tax. They say, if poor people want their children taught, let them pay for it. Their instruction has no right to be forced from our earnings. What a narrow prejudice is this! What miserable, short-sighted policy! The education of these neglected children, by making them better citizens, will in the long run prove a great protection both to life and property. Then the priests of different persuasions will lift up their voices because no particular creed is allowed to be taught in the seminaries, and exclaim, "The children will be infidels! These schools are godless and immoral in the extreme." Yes, children will be taught to love each other without any such paltry distinctions as party and creed. The rich and the poor will meet together to learn the sweet courtesies of a common humanity, and prejudice and avarice and bigotry cannot bear that. There is a spirit abroad in the world, and an evil spirit it is, which through all ages has instigated the rich to look down with contemptuous feelings of superiority on the humble occupations and inferior circumstances of the poor. Now that this spirit is diametrically opposed to the benevolent precepts of Christianity, the fact of our blessed Lord performing his painful mission on earth in no higher capacity than that of a working mechanic ought sufficiently to show. What divine benevolence, what godlike humility, was displayed in this heroic act! Of all the wonderful events in his wonderful history, is there one more astounding than this? That heaven's high majesty his court should keep in a clay cottage by each blast controlled, that glory's self should serve our hopes and fears, and free eternity submit to years. What a noble triumph was this over the cruel and unjust prejudices of mankind! It might truly be termed the divine philosophy of virtue, 
This condescension, on the part of the great creator of the universe, ought to have been sufficient to have rendered labor honorable in the minds of his followers, and we still indulge in the hope that the moral and intellectual improvement of mankind will one day restore labor to her proper pedestal in the temple of virtue. The chosen disciples of our great master, those to whom he entrusted the precious code of moral laws that was destined to overthrow the kingdom of Satan, and reform a degraded world, were poor, uneducated men. The most brilliant gems are often enclosed in the rudest incrustations, and he who formed the bodies and souls of men well knew that the most powerful intellects are often concealed amidst the darkness and rubbish of uneducated minds. Such minds, enlightened and purified by his wonder-working spirit, he sent forth to publish his message of glad tidings through the earth. The want of education and moral training is the only real barrier that exists between the different classes of men. Nature, reason, and Christianity recognize no other. Pride may say nay, but pride was always a liar, and a great hater of the truth. Wealth, in a hard abstract point of view, can never make any. Take away the wealth from an ignorant man, and he remains just the same being he was before he possessed it, and is no way bettered from the mere circumstances of his having once been rich. But let that wealth procure for him the only true and imperishable riches, knowledge, and with it the power to do good to himself and others, which is the great end of moral and religious training, and a mighty structure is raised which death itself is unable to destroy. The man has indeed changed his nature, and is fast regaining the resemblance he once bore to his Creator. The soil of man is no rank, sex, or color. It claims a distinction far above all these, and shall we behold its glorious energies imprisoned in the obscene den of ignorance and want, without making the least effort to enlighten its hideous darkness? It is painful to reflect upon the vast barren wilderness of human intellect, which on every side stretches around us, to know that thousands of powerful minds are condemned by the hopeless degradation of their circumstances to struggle on in obscurity without one gleam of light. What a high and noble privilege has the Almighty conferred upon the wealthy and well-educated portion of mankind, in giving them the means of reclaiming and cultivating those barren minds, and of lifting them from the mire of ignorance in which they at present wallow, to share with them the moral dignity of thinking men. A small portion of the wealth that is at present bestowed upon mere articles of luxury, or in scenes of riot and dissipation, would more than effect this great purpose. The education of the poorer classes must add greatly to the well-being and happiness of the world, and tend to diminish the awful amount of crimes and misery, which, up to the present moment, has rendered it a veil of tears. The ignorance of the masses must, while it remains, forever separate them from their more fortunate brethren. Remove this stumbling-block out of the way, and the hard line of demarcation which now divides them will soften, and gradually melt away. Their supposed inferiority lies in their situation alone. Turn to the history of those great men whom education has rescued from the very lowest walks of life, and you will find a mighty host, who were in their age and day the companions, the advisers, the friends of princes, men who have written their names with the pen and the sword upon pillars of time, 
and, if immortality can exist in a world of constant change, have been rendered immortal by their words or deeds. Let poverty and bigotry do their utmost to keep such spirits, while living, in the shades of obscurity. Death, the great equaliser, always restores to its possessors the rights of mind, and bids them triumph for ever over the low prejudices of their fellow-men, who, when reading the works of Burns, or gazing on the paintings of Raphael, reproach them with the lowliness of their origin. Yea, the proudest who have taste to appreciate their glorious creations, rejoice that genius could thus triumph over temporary obstacles. It has often been asserted by the rich and nobly born that if the poorer classes were as well educated as themselves, it would render them familiar and presumptuous, and they would no longer pay to their superiors in station that deference which must exist for the well-being of society. We view the subject with far other eyes, and conclude from analogy that that which has conferred such incalculable benefits on the rich, and helped mainly to place them in the position they now hold, could not be detrimental to the poor. The man who knows his duty is more likely to perform it well than the ignorant man, whose services are compulsory, and whose actions are influenced by the moral responsibility with a right knowledge must give. My earnest wish for universal education involves no dislike to royal rule, or for those distinctions of birth and wealth which I consider necessary for the well-being of society. It little matters by what name we call them. Men of talent and education will exert a certain influence over the minds of their fellow-men, which will always be felt and acknowledged in the world if mankind were equalized to-morrow. Perfect, unadulterated republicanism is a beautiful but fallacious chimera, which never has existed upon the earth, and which, if the Bible be true, and we have no doubts on the subject, we are told never will exist in heaven. Still we consider that it would be true wisdom and policy in those who possess a large share of the good things of this world to make labor honorable by exalting the poor operative into an intelligent moral agent. Surely it is no small privilege to be able to bind up his bruised and broken heart, to wipe the dust from his brow and the tears from his eyes, and bid him once more stand erect in his Maker's image. This is, indeed, to become the benefactor both of his body and soul. For the mind, once convinced of its own real worth and native dignity, is less prone to fall into low and degraded vices than when struggling with ignorance and the galling chain of despised poverty. It is impossible for the most depraved votary of wealth and fashion really to despise a poor, honest, well-informed man. There is an aristocracy of virtue as well as of wealth, and the rich man who dares to cast undeserved contempt upon his poor but highly-minded brother hears a voice within him which in tones which cannot be misunderstood reproves him for blaspheming his maker's image a glorious mission is conferred on you who are rich and nobly born which if well and conscientiously performed will make the glad arch of heaven ring with songs of joy nor deem that you will be worse served because your servant is a religious well-educated man or that you will be treated with less respect and attention by one who knows your station and titles you to it, than by the rude, ignorant slave who hates you in his heart and performs his appointed services with an envious, discontented spirit. 
when we consider that ignorance is the fruitful parent of crime, we should unite with heart and voice to banish it from the earth. We should devote what means we can spare, and the talents with which God has endowed us, in furthering every national and benevolent institution set on foot for this purpose, and though the progress of improvement may at first appear slow, this should not discourage any one from endeavouring to effect a great and noble purpose. Many months must intervene, after sowing a crop, before the husbandmen can expect to reap the harvest. The winter snows must cover, the spring rains vivify and nourish, and the summer sun ripen before the autumn arrives for the ingathering of his labour, and then the increase, after all his toil and watching, must be with God. During the time of our blessed Lord's sojourn upon earth, he proclaimed the harvest to be plenteous and the labours few, and he instructed his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more labourers into the field. Does it not therefore behove those who live in a more enlightened age, when the truth of the gospel, which he sealed with his blood, has been preached in almost every country, to pray to the Father of spirits, to proportion the labourers to the wants of his people, so that Christian kindness, brotherly love, and moral improvement may go hand in hand, and keep pace with increasing literary and scientific knowledge. A new country like Canada cannot value the education of her people too highly. The development of all the talent within the province will in the end prove her real worth, for from this source every blessing and improvement must flow. The greatness of a nation can more truly be estimated by the wisdom and intelligence of her people than by the mere amount of specie she may possess in her treasury. The money, under the bad management of ignorant rulers, would add but little to the well-being of the community, while the intelligence which could make a smaller sum available in contributing to the general good is in itself an inexhaustible mine of wealth. If a few enlightened minds are able to add so much strength and importance to the country to which they belong, how much greater must that country become if all her people possessed this intelligence? How impossible it would be to conquer a country if she could rely upon the united wisdom of an educated people to assist her in her hour of need? The force of arms could never subdue a nation thus held together by the strong hands of intellectual fellowship. To the wisdom of her educated men, Britain owes the present position she holds among the nations. The power of mind has subdued all the natural obstacles that impeded her course, and has placed her above all her competitors. She did not owe her greatness to extent of territory. Look at the position she occupies upon the map, a mere speck when compared with several European nations. It was not to her superior courage, great as that is acknowledged to be, the French, the Germans, the Spaniards are as brave, as far as mere courage is concerned, and are as ready to attack, and as slow to yield, as the lion-hearted king himself. No, it is to the moral power of her educated classes that she owes her superiority. It is more difficult to overcome mind than matter. To contend with the former is to contend with God himself, for all true knowledge is derived from him. To contend with the latter is to fight with the grosser elements of the earth, which, being corrupted in their nature, are more easily overcome. From her educated men have sprung all wonderful discoveries in science, which have extended the commerce of Great Britain, 
enlarged her capacity for usefulness, and rendered her the general benefactress of mankind. If education has accomplished these miracles, for they would have been regarded as such in a more remote period of the world's history, think of what importance it is to Canada to bestow this inestimable gift upon her children. Yet I should be sorry to see the sons of the poor emigrant wasting their valuable time in acquiring Latin and Greek. A man may be highly educated, may possess the most lofty and comprehensive mind, without knowing one syllable of either. The best years of a boy's life are often thrown away in acquiring the Latin language, which often proves of little use to him in after-life, and which, for the want of practice, becomes to him a dead letter, as well as a dead language. Let the boy be taught to think, to know the meaning thoroughly of what he learns, and, by the right use of his reflective faculties, be enabled to communicate the knowledge thus acquired to others. A comprehensive knowledge of the arts and science, of history, geography, chemistry, and mathematics, together with a deep and unbigoted belief in the great truths of Christianity, would render a man or woman a highly intellectual and rational companion, without going beyond the pale of plain English. Light! Give me more light! were the dying words of Goethe. And this should be the constant prayer of all rational souls to the Father of Light, more crimes are committed through ignorance than through the influence of bad and malignant passions. An ignorant man is incapable of judging correctly, however anxious he may be to do so. He gropes in the dark, like a blind man, and if he should happen to stumble on the right path, it is more by accident than from any correct idea which has been formed in his mind respecting it. The mind, which once begins to feel a relish for acquiring knowledge, is not easily satisfied. The more it knows, the less it thinks of its own acquirements, and the more anxious it becomes to arrive at the truth, and finding that perfection is not a growth of earth, it carries its earnest longings beyond this world, and seeks it in communion with the Deity. If the young could once be fully persuaded that there was no disgrace in labour, in honest, honourable poverty, but a deep and lasting disgrace in ignorance and immorality, their education would be conducted on the most enlightened plan, and produce the most beneficial results. The poor man, who could have recourse to a book for amusement, instead of wasting a leisure hour in the bar-room of a tavern, would be more likely to promote the comfort and respectability of his family. Why should the labourer be debarred? from sharing with the rich, the great world of the past, and be able to rank amongst his best friends the distinguished men of all creeds and countries, and to feel for these dead worthies, who, thanks to the immortal art of printing, still live in their works, the warmest gratitude and admiration. The very mention of some names awaken in the mind the most lively emotion. We recall their beautiful thoughts to memory and repeat them with as much earnestness as though the dead spake again through our lips. Of all the heaven-inspired inventions of man, there are none to which we are so greatly indebted as to the art of printing. To it we shall yet owe the emancipation of the larger portion of mankind from a state of mental and physical slavery. What floods of light have dawned upon the world since that silent orator, the press, set at liberty the imprisoned thoughts of men, 
and poured the wealth of mind among the famishing sons of earth. Formerly, few could read, because manuscript books, the labors of the pen, were sold at such an enormous price that only men of rank or great wealth could afford to purchase them. The peasant and the landholder who employed him were alike ignorant. They could not obtain books, and therefore learning to read might well be considered in those dark ages a waste of time. This profound ignorance gave rise to all those superstitions which in the present enlightened age are regarded with such astonishment by thinking minds. How could sensible good men condemn poor old women to death for being witches? was a question once asked me by my nephew, a fine, intelligent boy of eight years of age. Now this boy had read a good deal, young as he was, and thought more, and was wiser in his days and generation than these same pious bigots. And why? The boy had read the works of more enlightened men, and, making a right use of his reason, he felt convinced that these men were in error. Although he had been born and brought up in the backwoods of Canada, a fact which the great Matthew Hale was taught by bitter experience. I have said more on this subject than I at first intended, but I feel deeply impressed with the importance of it, and, though I confess myself wholly inadequate to do it justice it deserves, I hope the observations I have made will attract the attention of my Canadian readers, and lead them to study it more profoundly for themselves. Thanks be to God! Canada is a free country, a land of plenty, a land exempt from pauperism, burdensome taxation, and all the ills which crush and finally sink in ruin older communities, while the vigor of young life is yet hers, and she has before her the experience of all other nations, it becomes an act of duty and real patriotism to give her children the best education that lies in her power. THE POET Who can read the poet's dream, Shadow forth his glorious theme, And in written language tell The workings of the potent spell, Whose mysterious tones impart Life and vigour to his heart? Tis an emanation bright, Shooting from the fount of light, Flowing in upon the mind, Like sudden dayspring on the blind. Gilding with immortal dyes, Scenes unknown to common eyes. Revealing to the mental sight Visions of untold delight. Tis the key by fancy brought That opens up the world of thought, A sense of power, a pleasing madness, A hope in grief, a joy in sadness, A taste for beauty unalloyed, A love of nature never cloyed. The upward soaring of a soul, Unfettered by the world's control. Onward, heavenward, ever tending, Its essence with the eternal blending, Till, from mortal coil shook free, It shares the seraph's ecstasy. End of chapter 3